Hello, everybody. I'm honored to have with me today Arlie Holterman, who's the CEO and owner of National Imaging Solutions, which is based out of Texas. Arlie, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Bob. It's good to see you again. Now, Arlie is a former student. He graduated from Wharton in 2015. But Arlie, why don't you just tell us a little bit about your background, and then we could get into how you found and purchased National Imaging. Sure. I was born in Pittsburgh, but raised in Florida near Tampa. Uh, went to Auburn University, did RTC there, uh, Navy RTC. Was in the Navy for 11 years. I was a F-18 Super Hornet weapon systems officer. So was uh, stationed in Japan uh, for three years for my fleet tour. Uh, finished up as a flight instructor in Pensacola, Florida. And then after that, decided to get out and transition via the full-time MBA program there at Wharton. So did the MBA thing from 2013 to 2015. I think I took your class, Bob, in fall of 2014, I believe. And uh, yeah, after business school or while I was in business school, I decided to do a traditional or funded search. And so spring break of my last year at Wharton, started fundraising for that. Um, graduated that summer 2015, got married, moved to California, and ended up uh, closing my search fund and starting to search in November of 2015 from Southern California. <clears throat> uh, two years and three months I was in the search. Uh, searched, did not find, uh, is, is the short version. Lots of typical search fund war stories. If you talk to enough search funders, the stories all kind of sound the same. Mine was similar. Um, last five months of my traditional search fund had a deal under LOI. Um, you know, it was very hot, oversubscribed on debt, oversubscribed on equity. We we're on the third turn of the purchase agreement. We were at the one yard line. And the short version is for no good reason, the seller pulled the plug at the 11th hour. So I was out of time, out of budget, out of patience with the model. And so in February of 2018, rolled up, stopped the search fund. Um, did a few other random things, you know, tried to find myself, uh, recruited, played with a startup for a while, worked at a company for a couple of months. And ultimately, nine months later, roughly October of 2018, decided to do a self-funded search. So I said, hey, I want to take another swing at this. And with my wife's blessing, uh, I did. And so the, the intent at that time was to give myself 12 months of runway to make it happen. And so pretty quickly, uh, from when I started doing that in October of 18, before Thanksgiving of that year, found the company I'm with now um, and ended up closing, uh, coincidentally, as, as we discussed, uh, April 26th of 2019. So four years ago today. Um, well, happy anniversary. Business. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a- uh, How long after that when you started, did you find the business? From my self-funded search time? Yes. Uh, it was about a month and a half. Okay. And what did you do to find, what did you do to look for businesses during that time? So when I was doing the self-funded route, I was exclusively using brokers or intermediaries, which was a, for me, a big departure. When I was doing my traditional search, it was probably 75, 80% proprietary search. You know, I had my own gigantic proprietary search deal pipeline machine uh, that was robust, reaching out to thousands of owners a quarter or more sometimes. Um, Oh, by the way, I think that's a complete waste of time for most searchers. And so that was a big lesson learned for me. What lists did you buy that were not um, fertile? 
So I didn't buy any lists. So we created, I say we, me and my team of interns that, you know, rotated through the semesters, we created our own lists. So I'd say, hey, this month or this quarter, we're going to focus on, you know, the widget service industry. You know, hey, interns, please go find me every widget service business uh, in the country. Find, you know, do some very surface level diligence based on the website primarily. And if it looks like they might be big enough or might fit the model, we're going to reach out. And so that's what we did or what I did for two years during a traditional search. And uh, again, that could be a whole other conversation, but I think that's for a searcher with two years of very, very limited time. I think that's a waste of time. Okay. Um, So now October, 2018, you start saying, I'm going to do it on my own. Yep. And you went to use brokers and intermediaries. Yeah. So at the time we lived in Dallas, Texas, and we knew we probably wanted to stay in Texas. So at that time I just created, you know, my own spreadsheet of Texas brokers. So Dallas, Houston, Austin is where I was kind of focusing, uh, reached out to a bunch of them. Uh, some I had conversations with or even meetings with most I did not, but, you know, reached out and, you know, had my spreadsheet. I rotated through weekly, just checking out their websites because sometimes they have deals just on their website and listed only on their websites. And that's how I found this one. It was with a very small local Houston business broker that was listed just on their website, their business broker website. And it, you know, like I'd done thousands of times before, it looked good at first glance. I reached out. The more I learned, the better it sounded. Um, You know, again, I found that mid-November of 2018. I think I visited the seller in early December of, of 2018 and got them, sent them an LOI before the end of the year and got them to sign it by the end of January. Right now, what does National Imaging Solutions do? We, we skipped over that. <laughs> so National Imaging Solutions is a third-party medical imaging sales and service provider. What that means is we have two primary business lines. One, we sell, resell medical imaging equipment. So think MRI, CT scanner, x-ray, and ultrasounds. And then uh, business line number two, we sell, maintain, repair, usually on long-term recurring contracts, the same equipment. So we have a small team of field service engineers that cover all of Texas, and we occasionally do work in other states too. And that's what we do. Now, you have no background prior to this in medical imaging other than maybe being a patient where you had a bone x-ray or something like that. Yes, I've had some x-rays and some MRIs, but I knew nothing about it. Uh, As I still tell my customers, don't ask me how to fix a CT scanner, but I can tell you how to blow it up from 24,000 feet. Um, And that, that was the extent of my background. Okay. So that's neat. So you found this business and now you, what did you do during the due diligence process? Can you describe that to us? And so, also, while you're describing it, let, I, let me cut you off once, is that, is, is there anything that you know now that you wish you knew during due diligence that would have made it faster or more um, effective or more concise? Uh, well, so starting there first, so what, what I wish I'd have known, and this, tell me if this is too high level, but ultimately it's that even the most thorough diligence process you can't learn everything. And that's especially true if you have a shady owner who's actually actively working to hide things, uh, that the best, most thorough diligence process in the world isn't going to find everything. And that's, that's what I wish I'd have known because I thought I ran the most thorough diligence process in the world. And I thought, therefore, I know everything about the business. And 
that was not necessarily the case. Some examples, um, which again, in hindsight for me were almost obvious, but but not at the time, even after having searched for three years. So for example, you know, how do you pad the EBITDA if you're a seller? <clears throat> well, that's easy. You just don't put all of your payables into QuickBooks. Or you can just create fake invoices that help the AR. And you know, through diligence, if there's hundreds or thousands of invoices, you're not going to scrutinize one or you know one or two or three or ten random ones. And likewise, if you physically don't see a payable bill that was not put in QuickBooks, you don't even know it exists, and you don't know it should exist. And those are just some examples of things that afterwards I'm like, okay, well, next time you know, maybe we'll structure the purchase agreement a little differently to account for things like this. So again, that's kind of a high level answer, but it's, it was my big takeaway. And for somebody who flew F-18s, I don't know what high level means compared to the rest of us who keep our feet on the ground most of the time, but (laughs) I I appreciate that. I mean, I'm always concerned that have they told us about their payables, about their accruals, have they um, bolstered their receivables or, you know, yeah. things along those lines, which could be almost like even cannibalizing sales from a future year and bring yeah. them into this year. But what, what did you do during the due diligence process? I mean, I always, you know, took it, you know, this, the simple two-part step of exploratory and then confirmatory. So for me, post LOI exploratory was mostly focused on a, the industry, because as you said, I had no industry background. So I wanted to make sure, hey, this was a good industry that was growing that had tailwinds. Uh, so talking to anyone in my network or friends of friends that were healthcare providers of some you know, some sort. Um, the industry was a big one. Uh, the customer base for this deal specifically was a big one. So the overwhelming majority, close enough to 100, call it 90 plus percent, the customer base are freestanding emergency rooms, which are uh, healthcare providers that it's not a model that exists in every state in the country. It's probably less than half of the states, but it's a big thing in Texas. And there's a lot of pros and cons to that model. But because it was 90 plus percent of the customers, I wanted to learn more about that. So that was a big thing. Um, you know, and then you know, from there, once everything smelled good, uh, you know, it took about a month and a half after the LOI to get year-end financials, which was much later than expected, and uh, began the QOV quality earnings report at that point. So kind of moved into confirmatory at that point. On the confirmatory side, obviously, my accountant did the QOV. I worked with him on that. And, you know, I was focused primarily on financials, but also contracts. Um Probably 60% of the revenue at the time was contract-based and the rest was equipment sales. And so I was looking at worst case scenario or catastrophic scenario, which in my mind at the time was, hey, there's a lot of smoke and mirrors here. Let's say equipment sales go to zero post-closing and I only have the contracts to survive off of. What is the meat on those bones? What are the details? How long do those contracts go? What are the terms? What are the exit clauses? And so I read every single contract the seller had. I had a robust spreadsheet that broke down all the details, all the categories. And you know, I had my pro forma of the worst case scenario of zero equipment sales after closing and no contracts renew in that scenario. How long does the company survive? And now, so that was the lens. 
what are some of the categories that you had in your spreadsheet? Just a few of the more relevant ones. I mean, to me, just the basic contract terms. So length, dollar amount, exit clause, uh, name of the customer, because I wanted to make sure I had a decent picture on customer concentration, which I have a funny story about that, uh, if we have time. Um, And those were the main ones is just, yeah, term, dollar amount, exit clause, and anything else applicable. So now what else did you do perform during due diligence? Did you meet with the employees? I did. So this was an unusual case in a good way, in the sense that the owner, the seller was very open with his team. It was a very small team. So they were generating about 5 million in revenue, but only had five employees counting the owner at the time. He was very open about having wanted to sell for a while. So I got to meet uh, the employees first on an informal basis, just the first couple of times I visited. And then, uh, about a month or so before closing, I actually had 15 or 20 minutes one-on-one with each employee um, as the prospective buyer, just to get to know them better and see what their feelings were. So prior to closing, prior to closing. Yes. Good. Good. Um, anything else, any other key items that you did during due diligence that you think would be helpful? I mean, again, the, the primary focus was financial, was customer, customer contract details, um, a little on the employees. If, if anything, I looked at the employees' uh, situation as a risk because there were so few that, again, catastrophic scenario, what happens if the seller gets hit by a bus the day after closing and one or two of the employees leave? I don't know anything, and I'm left with just one or two people to help me. How and many so that employees was, do you have? Today, we have 13. Okay. All right. Yeah, and- we also changed... I guess to explain that, we we also changed our model. We'd been when I bought the business, it was an outsourced service model, meaning we didn't really have in-house service engineers. And about a year after I took it over, we we changed that. And so now we do service in-house. All right. So you, it's evolved a little and you find that model is better for you. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, we have more control. We get to know the customers better and it's just more profitable. Okay. And um, what else can you tell us about the business? Are you happy that you bought it? Four years later? My answer is always the same when someone asks me that. And it is, I can't answer that today. Ask me when I exit. Um, It's been a heck of a roller coaster ride. Uh, The current outlook is good, but it's been been a lot of ups and a lot of downs. I think the cliche search fund thing to say is the highs are higher, the lows are lower. And it's very true. Um, Oh, I, I can talk more specifically about what I do like and what I don't like. I I, I love the autonomy. I love the freedom. Um, having done a self-funded bootstrapped search, I was able to negotiate. I do have a couple partners, so I own 75% of the company. Um, so I'm the majority owner, but not 100%. Uh, but I do have, uh, through my operating agreement, uh, full operational control. There's no board. Um, and for what it's worth, my two silent investors, non-operating partners are incredibly friendly, incredibly helpful. So even if that wasn't the case, it would still be a good situation for me. But, but my point is, I don't have to have that stress of someone looking over my shoulder, you know, maybe getting in my kibbles, even though they don't know what's really going on with the business. I don't have to worry about being fired. Uh, and so those kinds of stressors just aren't present in the situation. So again, sort of the autonomy, the flexibility are huge. 
you know, if I want to go, I mean, today I'm going to go do lunch with my wife and I don't have to worry about, you know, leaving work or if I want to go do a three day weekend or a ski trip or whatever, uh, there's no stress. Um, those are the good things. Uh, well, I, and I guess in that same, same ver line of thinking, you know, I live in Austin, so I manage the company remotely. Our, our only warehouse office is in Houston. I go back about once a month for a few days, but you know, during COVID, my family and I made the decision we wanted to live in a suburb west of Austin, and I can work here in my home office uh, 95% of the time. And that's something that, again, if I'd done a traditional search fund or if I had a board, there's a good chance they wouldn't have been okay with that. But I had that authority to do so. And even if I hadn't, my investors were very good with it. So um, so those are the good things. You know, the, the things that I don't love, um, it is the roller coaster. It's the financial stress. So uh, there's many great things about an SBA loan. So I did use a, an SBA 7A loan to acquire the company or for, for most of the financing. Um, the only downside is a personal guarantee. So anyone who's 20% or more ownership, I'm the only one, has to sign a personal guarantee. So anytime, you know, we kind of have a down month or quarter, uh, you know, I have to look at worst case scenario, which is bankruptcy, uh, you know, to, to be direct. So I don't think that's going to happen. And as time has progressed, the odds of that happening have gone down. And I think the upside has uh, you know, gone up accordingly as well. But until the debt is paid off, which it's not, um, you know, that's a threat that's out there. Uh, so, well, so that's a I pain. Can, I can tell you that I've known you for eight or nine years and I would never bet against you. So I know I have confidence in you, but when you well, purchase you. the business, um, what portion of seven, eight as, as a percentage of the purchase price, what portion was, uh, what portion was the loan? The easier math for me on the spot is is total debt. So we did have a seller note. So including the seven A loan and the seller note, we were ninety three percent levered at closing. Okay, and so the seller's note was about ten percent, fifteen percent. Yeah, rate. I think the seller note was fifteen percent. Okay. Um, yeah. And is this and and the seller? I guess that note is still outstanding too. We pay it off this September. Yeah. Oh, good. Okay. Yeah which I'm looking, I'm counting the months. Yes. Okay. That's good. And uh, do you, is the seller involved in the business? He is not. Um, it's a very deep topic, but the, the short version is uh, I, I drank my own poison. There were some very clear red flags well before closing. Um, and he and I, within just two or three weeks post-closing uh, were moderately hostile. Um, he was doing some things that were in pretty direct violation of the purchase agreements, to put it nicely. And by month three, uh, that's the point where he was officially kicked out of the company. And at that point, it was, you know, we were not directly communicating. It was my attorney and his attorney. Um, and we ended up having to settle our legal disputes related to closing, post-closing uh, through mediation. So we had two rounds of mediation. And um, another funny closing coincidence, but 12 months to the day, uh, we signed um, a mediated settlement agreement that was thankfully very favorable to the company. But to get there, it was the worst 12 months of my life. 
Um, it was not a fun process. Um, so it took a so, lot of share. It took a lot of your share of your mind during that period. Yes. I mean, really my first year, a, I had zero turnover, zero transition with the owner. And simultaneously, I spent the majority of my time with working with the legal problems. And well, while trying to run a business at the same time. That I knew nothing about. Yes. <clears throat> okay. Is there anything else that you think people should know about this? Because I mean, notwithstanding the challenges that you face, which are not unusual, you seem to have prevailed and yeah. are doing well. And even though you're cautiously optimistic, I'm very optimistic about your chances. But well, thank you. What could, is there anything else that you want to tell us? Um, I guess for the story, it, it, it is worth mentioning, uh, along with that less than fun transition with the seller, uh, two weeks after closing, I had my second child born. Uh, so, so that was thrown in the mix too. So by well, the congratulations. way, I thank you. So I, and we're up to three now, so three boys. Um, but, uh, I, I don't recommend having a child within one month of closing on your first business. Um, I guess to, to answer your question, though, more directly, you know, sort of parting shots, thoughts. I mean, A, I've, I've done both sort of ETA search models. I am very biased and I am very much pro self-funded, pro bootstrap, very pro SBA 7A loan for many, many, many reasons. I think if you can't, if, if you want to buy and manage your own business without a doubt, if it's an option for you, because I know it's not for everybody. But if you can go the bootstrapped or fund, self-funded route, do that a hundred times over. Why? Um, Why? The primary reason is flexibility. <laughs> it gives you flexibility on the kind of business you look at, both size, business model. Uh, it lets you be geographically flexible. If you only want to look in Texas or only want to look in Dallas, you can. Um, it lets you look at businesses that maybe a search fund investor, a serial search fund investor wouldn't touch with a 10 foot pole, but maybe it's a great business for you. And again, that could be because of size. Maybe there's too much hair on the deal. Maybe it's not a search fundy enough industry. Um, and so for me, it comes down to flexibility. Now, a nice secondary reason, you can usually get more financial upside, um, but for me, it's flexibility. Okay. Well, Arlie, I know you're real busy. And I know at one point you want to get to see your wife for lunch today. So I really yeah. appreciate your help and your time and your advice that you gave to us. I am continuing to be very optimistic about you. And as I told you, when you graduated for you, it was not a question of if you're going to be successful, just when. So just thanks thank so a lot. And um, thank you again. Thanks for your time. Yeah, you're welcome. And, and thanks for having me. Great to see you again, Bob.